When I was um, in college, my roommates and I had a tradition where at lunchtime, we'd get our lunch and then we'd sit on the couch and we'd watch an episode of The Office, like 23 minutes or whatever. And so that was kind of our tradition. And over the years, um, since then, as they kind of introduced it to me, and you know, I'm not necessarily like advocating you go do this, but watch The Office at every lunch break, but that's just what I did. And over the years, I've watched through those early seasons of The Office several times. And I have another one of my roommates from that time, uh, he watched it a lot too. And so we usually get together like um, every summer, our, my old roommates and I, and hang out. And he and I can think of an office quote or an office scene for about every situation that comes up. And so, you know, we might not even say like, hey, this is like that thing from the office. We'll just say what happened in that scene and we'll both, you know, chuckle to ourselves because we both um, know what's going on. Um, and it's like, you know, something that someone does or something someone says or minus of it and we can just bring it up. And the point of me sharing this is not to advocate you do that or to impress you, like, wow, you know a lot of office stuff. Um, but it's to show how much the office influences my life, has influenced my life. You know, not saying that's a good influence, but it has. It influences how I see things, how I respond to situations. Even at Starbucks, sometimes awkwardly, somebody will say something, I'll be like, this is like that scene, and it's like, they're like trying to make their coffee, and they're like, uh-huh, and it's like, never mind, I'll just try to... I'll just keep that to myself. And of course, there's more, been more influences in my life than just The Office. Um, just the last week or two, Katie and I started watching The Flash on Netflix. I listened to music on Spotify and heard several ads while doing so. I re- was researching how to do compost, so I watched a video. And in that video, there's ads embedded that came up, too. And I've read emails and websites. I've read a few chapters in Harry Potter and The Order of the Phoenix. And all these things were, were inputs that were being put into me, things that I was looking at, listening to, and all of these carried with them a worldview, a way of looking at the world, a way of looking at people, a way of looking at God, a way of looking at what's valuable and what should be our priority. And so just think about your last week of your, last week of your life. What, what has influenced you? What kind of influences have you been taking in? And we may think, you know, I just watch this for the information. I don't really let it change how I live. But the reality is we're soaking stuff in all the time. And so it could be people you've talked to, news you've listened to, social media, both what people post and the ads that come up on social media, billboards, radio, TV, movies, music, email, phone calls, texts, your boss, your coworkers, your family, your friends. And how many different influences do we experience in an hour or in a day or in a week or over a lifetime? Just consider all the things that have come into your life and have tried to exert an influence on you or that you've looked to to be an influence for you. And in what ways do these influences shape how you live, what you value, what your priorities are, what you live for, how you talk, how you dress, how you think about money, how you think about the government, how you think about marriage and parenting, how you think about work, how you think about the last years of your life, which we call retirement, how you think about your body and sexuality and so forth. And so we have to ask ourselves, what has had the greatest influence on our life um, for the way we see the world, the way we see ourselves, the way we see God? And we're in this series, as I said, called Different, First uh, Peter. And I felt like that word, different, was the best way to capture what Peter's talking about. These people he's writing to in the first century in a bunch of towns in modern-day Turkey, um, he's writing to them, and they're experiencing hostility and harassment because they're different. They've left their old religion, that, you know, it's kind of like the state religion. Everyone's doing it, uh, and they weren't Jewish. And so it's like, well, you guys aren't Jewish. Why are you going and believing in... Uh, Israel's promised Messiah, as our uh, statement of faith says. Why are you coming and putting your faith in this Jewish king? You're not Jewish. 
So they left their old religion, left their old lifestyle, left all that stuff. And so people are uh, they're experiencing pressure. And as I've said before, um, Pastor Tony Evans says, we've lost home field advantage in this country. We're now the visiting away team. And so in the United States, uh, we don't have home field advantage. That slowly but surely our culture and all our society is moving away um, from whatever biblical values or biblical priorities we used to have. And so almost everything about biblical Christianity, even if we read what's going on in this first chapter, uh, almost everything about biblical Christianity is offensive to our culture. Our beliefs about God, our beliefs about people, our beliefs about salvation, our ethics and our morality, where identity comes from, all of that is offensive to the current values of our culture. And Peter, we might ask ourselves, okay, so I, have this, I believe in this different God that makes me a different type of person. How do I remain different in a culture that wants me to, is pressuring me to fit in? And how do I respond differently in a hostile environment? What do I need to do that? And that's really what Peter's letter is all about. It's bring, saying, you guys are having struggles with this. And so everything he says is to help them to remain different and to respond differently to the people around them. And it comes down to, uh, in this passage we're looking at today, who is going to influence us the most. And so there's three commands in this passage. It looks like there's more, but there's three main ones. And this passage starts with a therefore at the beginning of verse 13. And something, a little thing somebody said in seminary is like, when the, whenever you see a therefore, you have to ask, what's it there for? You know, it's you know, kind of lame, but it's a good way to remember. I say, okay, there's this therefore. That means what he's about to say is based on what he just said. And so what he just said in verses 3 through 12, and then 13, he says, Therefore, now I'm going to tell you some commands. I've told you what God has done in your life. He started that passage, verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then he goes into this big praise of God. And now he's going to say, Therefore, now you ought to live this way. And what they're to do is a response to what God has already done. And so the first command is, Set your hope fully on the grace to be brought to you. And this is just verse 13, one, one verse. And so it's, this is about hope. Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you. And so, okay, the command is set your hope fully. Fully on what? He says, the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And this grace is really kind of summarizing everything he talked about in the previous verses. He said, God has caused you, by his, according to his great mercy, that you are born again into a living hope, uh, into a... Uh, inheritance, into a salvation. And so he's saying that's the grace you're going to be given. You've been given this grace of this future that you have to look forward to um, with Jesus. And he says that's been given to you according to God's mercy. And he sums it up as grace. This is the grace that's going to be brought to you. And um, if you want a good definition of grace, it's undeserved favor, unmerited, undeserved favor. So what God has done for us in Christ it's always the basis for how we should live our lives. God is always the first actor in our relationship with him. He takes the initiative. Because Peter says, look, you've been given this grace, and now set your hope fully on it. This is what you do. And so what does that mean, to set our hope fully on the grace that will be brought to us? Well, hope, sometimes we use hope in weird ways that the Bible doesn't really use it. Like, I hope it's nice this weekend. I hope my boss doesn't ask me to do overtime. I hope the teacher doesn't give homework. I hope I feel better soon. And really, it's kind of like a wish. Like, I hope this will happen. It's like a, kind of a wish that we want to happen. But hope in the Bible is uh, uh, connected with waiting 
or expectation. And we talked last time in First Peter about it's looking forward to something. And it's not just looking forward to something that we hope you know, or we wish will happen, but it's a for sure thing. We're looking forward to the grace that will be brought to us. And hope is trusting God for the future. And in this case, it's trusting that God will bring about the future he's told us he'll bring about. We wait on the Lord to wait for what he says he will do. We trust his promises, that he will keep his word. And so hope is looking forward to the future God has promised us. Hope is looking forward to the future God has promised us. And so this hope is based on his character, his trustworthiness, his faithfulness. And we're saying, that's what's going to happen. So I'm going to set my hope fully on that. It's not like wishful thinking. And so how, we might ask, how do we set our hope fully on the grace Christ will give you? And he says, uh, he starts the passage, or this verse by saying, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope. And so those are the two things. First, we set our hope on the grace we brought to us by preparing our minds for action. Preparing our minds for action. And the word here is actually like, um, uh, gird up the loins of your mind, which is kind of a weird thing. But in that, uh, in that day, they, men would wear, uh, I guess men and women, I suppose, both would wear like kind of this long over, it wasn't quite an overcoat, but it was like the layers of their outfit, the outer one was a bit longer, like knee length or, or lower. And you can't really run when you've got that happening. And so if they wanted to <clears throat> do some work or run, you pull it up and like put, tuck it into your belt so then their, their legs were free to run. And you might, you know, kind of a modern example might be like, you know, you're going to have to roll up your sleeves and, you know, get to work. Or like you might see somebody... Uh, like they're about to do something. It's like, okay, take my, you know, take my jacket off, take my suit coat off. So it's like, okay, roll up the sleeves of your mind. Um, and really what he's saying is be ready. Be ready for the salvation that's coming. And if you think about this, uh, back in the Old Testament, Israel, the nation of Israel was freed from slavery. And when they left Egypt, um, there was still a long way to go to get to the promised land. There's what God has promised. That's where he's bringing us. That's the grace he's given to us. But there was a journey to get there, and needed to be ready. There's obstacles they faced, challenges they faced, opponents they had. And so uh, Peter's saying, this isn't the time to sit back and relax. You aren't home yet. You're not at your promised land yet. Just like Israel, they got freed from slavery in Egypt, and then they weren't at the promised land yet. They didn't sit down and you know, just relax out in the desert. They had to get there. And then secondly, he says, by being sober-minded, which sober reminds us of drunkenness. And when you're drunk, you're kind of like, you know, like inattentive to what's going on around you. You're kind of lulled and dulled and drowsy. And you can think of it as like drinking in the world's influences. You know, don't, he's not saying literally don't get drunk, drunk, but don't be drinking in the world's influences. What's going to influence you here? You need to not be lulled and dulled and drowsy by that. And Jesus identified two main things of the world. I mean, first, you know, the parable of the sower. The seed is sown on hard ground. The devil takes it away. There's not even a chance. But some people... They look like they have faith right away. Um, that could be the risk here. These people look like they have faith. And Peter's saying, don't, don't give in to these two things. And Jesus identifies the two biggest things that draw us away from him are worldly possessions and worldly popularity. He says some people will be drawn away by the cares of life. And some people will just be, uh, they'll, they'll be scorched up by the world um, not liking who they are. And so worldly possessions and worldly popularity can cloud and twist our thinking or not seeing clearly, we're not, and we need to be, he's saying you need to be sober-minded, be alert to these temptations and pressures. And so why did he, why did he tell them to be ready and alert? There's two, two reasons that I was just bringing up. The world will draw us away from Christ, and the devil will draw us away from Christ. 
So first the world will draw us away from Christ. The world will, will draw us to set our hope on it. And if we let our guard down, if we aren't prepared for action, if we aren't sober-minded, uh, we'll, be taken, uh, we'll be taken by it. If you consider like going, uh, if you're like in an ocean or in a stream or a river or something, there's a current to that. And if we stop paddling, if we stop being prepared for action, stop being sober-minded, the current will just take us. And so we need to watch for the world to drift us away from Christ. And we can tend to let our lifestyle slide toward the world. It exerts pressure on us and influence on us. And if we aren't attentive, we will drift into it. So the world will draw us away from Christ. Secondly, the devil will draw us away from Christ. It isn't only that we aren't home yet, but that we're in enemy territory on our way to being home. At the end of 1 Peter, some of his summary commands he gives in 1 Peter 5, 8, 9, he says, Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith. And then in 5.12, he says, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. So resist the devil. Stand firm in this grace. And some have said that the greatest tactical advantage that the devil has in the United States is that we don't really believe he's there. We don't really live as if he's real. We don't really pay much attention to him. The devil's primary tactic is deception, asking, did God, did God really say? Can you really trust what he said? And perhaps the devil's greatest lie in America is, did God really say that you have an enemy? Doesn't that sound a bit too medieval and supernatural and outdated to talk about uh, a devil being out there, roaming around trying to get you? And television has made a joke of the devil. I mean, cartoons, <laughs> cartoons I grew up on, Looney Tunes, I mean, Bugs Bunny can go down to hell and you can have an angel and a demon talking to you on your shoulder and it's like a joke. It's like, oh, the devil's not very scary. He's in children's cartoons, you know, and other TV shows are made about the devil too. And so we tend to not even believe we have an enemy. And living, imagine living in a country at war. I mean, you can think of Ukraine even. And how foolish would it be for someone in Ukraine to be like, we're not... We're not at war, so we're going to walk out, stroll down the street like they normally do, unprotected, not watching out, and so then you're probably going to die. And so the same thing is that if we go out walking around unprepared, unprotected for battle, uh, the enemy's job is made so much easier if you don't even believe you have an enemy. If you're caught you know, with your guard down, like people say, like sitting ducks. And so the devil will draw us away from Christ by distorting our view of God and making the world in sin look enticing. So, an application for your life that you can write down. What is your hope set on? What is your hope set on? What is the object of your hope? What do you put your hope in? That's the command here. What do you put your hope in? And we might think like, well, I, I do hope in Jesus, but he says set your hope fully on that. It's not like you diversify your investments or whatever. It's like, you know, put, like I was praying before, put your eggs all in that basket. You don't put your chips all in on Jesus. Set your hope fully on it. And we need to ask ourselves, have the world and the devil drawn us from the grace that Jesus has given and will give us? And it's not about earning grace. It's about setting our hope fully on what has been given and what has been promised. Secondly, the first command is about hope. The second is about Holiness in verse 14 through 16. He says, Be holy as he who called you is holy. And he starts off verse uh, 14 by saying, As obedient children. 
And so this is putting them in the family context. God, as we saw in verse 3, has caused you to be born again. And you've been born again into his family. And so now, as obedient children. And then he gives a negative command. He says, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. Uh, in other words, saying, don't be conformed to those desires that ruled you before you knew Jesus. If you want an example of those, for these particular people, that's chapter 4, verses 3 through 4. So, don't be conformed to those passions of your former ignorance. That's your old life. And then he gives a contrast. He says, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. And so they're supposed to be holy as God is holy. So he says, as obedient children, and as he who called you is holy, be holy. It's like father, like son. And so who are they to model their conduct after? It's the one who's called them. The one who, as we'll see later in uh, 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 8-9, to 9, it says, uh, he's called them out of darkness into his marvelous light. God's taken initiative in their life. Grace comes first, and then he calls them to uh, responsibility. First it's grace, and then it's command. Relationship, then responsibility. And so he says, the one who has called you, he's called you out of that darkness, and now be holy as he who called you is holy. And we may ask, well, what is holiness? And um, it's a very simple definition, but it's very hard to understand in some ways, or to live it. Holiness is being set apart. It really needs to be different. To separate yourself from the passions that animate and control the world. And so what is it, God, it says, be holy as I am holy. What does it mean for God to be holy? Uh, well, God is unlike this world. Um, this world, and we were supposed to be like God. We were made in God's image and likeness. And one way you can kind of boil it down is that God is love. And he loves unlike any other. And we're made to uh, receive that love and to give that love out. And our issue is that we've turned away from God to love other things. You can think of all sin. The root of all sin is really disordered love. It's love directed in the wrong direction. And this uh, verse that he says, you know, be holy as he who called you is holy. Uh, Since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. He takes that straight out of the book of Leviticus. It's said a couple times, you shall be holy for I am holy. And the book of Leviticus is really... Uh, telling the nation of Israel how do a sinful, how does a holy God dwell among a sinful people, and then also how does that people amongst whom God dwells be different from the rest of the world? And the book of Leviticus gives them these sacrifices that they sacrifice so they can be cleansed of their sins, so God can be among them. And God is telling them throughout through Leviticus that you need to live differently from the people around you. Uh, Jesus. Uh, way he said it was uh, in the world but not of the world we can't leave this world for not to be of this world of this world's values of this world's priorities of this world's um, characteristics and as Peter says uh, we saw earlier they are elect exiles they're sojourners and strangers and foreigners and so there should be a distinct flavor to their life it's like if all of us moved here from you know wherever it is wherever country Belgium or something um, we'd all have this little accent. We'd probably dress in an interesting way, different ways. We'd have different holidays and traditions, and we'd have this distinct flavor to us. And so uh, we, we're supposed to be in the world, but not of it. Like if you move from Belgium, you're supposed to be uh, in the United States, but not of it. You're supposed to be of Belgium, still representing that. I don't know why I picked Belgium, just what came to mind. Maybe the waffles. Right? They do waffles. Yeah, I don't know. So anyway, the question for this is, who do you model your life after? Who do you want to be like? Who do you want to be like? Who do you model your life after? And do the people 
in your life see something different when they look at you? Or do they see the conduct of the world in you? And it's interesting, Peter says, uh, it's really all-encompassing. He says, uh, you also be holy in all your conduct. So this doesn't mean, okay, guys, you, get, you need to get these really re- these religious practices scheduled into your week, and then you're good. He says, no, in all of your conduct, it's more than mental agreement, it's more than religious practices like coming here on a Sunday or you know, opening your Bible in the morning, although those things will fuel living a different life. Uh, but it's and it's more than avoiding bad stuff. Like okay, Christians, you know, holiness means I separate myself from all that bad stuff. And it's like no, in all of our conduct, our relationship to God is shown in our daily lives. You're to be holy in how you conduct yourself at work, and how how you conduct yourself in your neighborhood, and how you conduct yourself with your family and your friends. And uh, our times together are what enable us to say, okay, yes, this is who God is. This is what He's done in my life. He set me apart. Now I can go into this world that's going to put pressure on us to be the same as it, but we can be, have the strength to be different. And so, do the people in your life see something different when they look at you? Or do they see the conduct of the world in you? Lastly, he says, uh, he has a command about fear. He says, in, it starts in verse 17, this is about conduct yourselves with fear. And so he stays on talking about how we conduct ourselves. And so verse 17 he says, uh, And if if you call on him as Father, who judges impartially, according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. So conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, which connects back to be holy in all your conduct. And one of the ways we can be holy in all our conduct is to conduct ourselves with fear. And why conduct ourselves with fear? What's the reason for that? And we'll get, we'll get back to fear. What does that word mean? But he gives two reasons. First, he starts off, If you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds. And so he just starts off, If you're calling on the one as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear. That's the first reason. And so we learn this God has called you. He's, as the one who's called you, be holy as he is holy. But now we call on Him. If you call on Him as Father, uh, as the one who's gonna, who you know is going to evaluate your life, including yours, conduct yourselves with fear. And so we're, God has called us, and now we call on Him, relying on Him, asking for help and mercy and guidance. And then his second reason for why I conduct ourselves with fear is he continues in verse uh, 18. So conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. So the second reason is that you've been ransomed by God. Ransom is like a, it's a slavery word. If you're going to free a slave from slavery, you redeem them by paying the ransom price. And so he's saying, Look, you are in slavery to the world and sin and Satan and death. And now God has ransomed you from that. He's redeemed you from that, taking you out of that slavery. And so now you ought to act differently. And he didn't do it uh, with you know, gold or silver or anything else, but he did it with this precious blood of Christ, his own son. Jesus' death on the cross is what gets you out of this. And so they've already been ransomed by God. They can call on God as Father because he's already acted to rescue them and bring them into his family. And so the fact that God has redeemed them is a motivation, but it's also uh, what he paid to redeem them is a motivation. And he's redeemed with Christ's blood. 
his death. And this can refer back to several things in the Old Testament. It could be the Passover lamb, which when uh, Israel was in slavery in Egypt and the final plague that got brought on them was uh, what later came, the tradition that came out of it was the Passover, where the angel of death was going to go to every household and he was going to pass over the ones that had the blood of the lamb on the doorpost. And so the same way, the blood of the lamb, the blood of Jesus, is what makes it so God passes over us, that we do not have death brought to us. Or it could be the suffering servant um, from Isaiah 53 that was going to have, uh, was going to give his life in order to free other people in their place. He's going to be, his death was going to be a guilt offering for our sin. Or Leviticus, many sacrifices called for a lamb without blemish because what's happening in Leviticus is someone has sinned, now you bring an animal that's without spot or blemish. The person has spot and blemish because they've sinned and they bring it and the priest, they lay their hand on it and the priest kills it in their place. And so, Jesus died in our place that we be free of our guilt, free of our condemnation, free of death. And so how did they get in this relationship? They're supposed to conduct themselves with fear. They've been redeemed and ransomed, like Israel was redeemed from slavery in Egypt. And now they, too, have a relationship with God. You remember Israel was brought out. They come to Mount Sinai to get the Ten Commandments. And so it's he redeemed them, then he gave them commands. This is what it looks like now to be in this relationship. And so he says, you've been redeemed from your futile, empty ways inherited from your forefathers, which is one of the big clues that this is a a non-Jewish Gentile audience because um, it's unlikely that Peter would say, you know, the empty ways of our Jewish people because, oh no, Peter's very Jewish. Jesus was a Jewish Messiah and the Old Testament pointed to him. And so what kind of fear are they supposed to have? Conduct yourselves with fear. And we can start this fear by reflecting on what kind of fear it isn't. And sometimes if you see a word or phrase in Scripture and you're like, wait a second, I, I'm not really getting that, it can help to first start off by saying, um, what doesn't he mean by this? And so he says, conduct yourselves with fear. Okay, that might be confusing. I'm supposed to be afraid of God. Uh, I don't get that. Start off, okay, i got to get clarity here. What doesn't he mean um, by the word fear? And so Peter has already said that they were chosen by God for forgiveness through Jesus' death in their place. And so this fear does not contradict God's forgiveness or assurance that God, they are right with God. Peter has also said that uh, they believe in Jesus and rejoice with a joy that is inexpressible. So this fear does not diminish joy. It's not a fear um, that they're going to be you know, just lacking joy, stressed and afraid all the time. Peter has already said that they are God's chosen ones whom he has set apart that they have been born again into a living hope, inheritance, and salvation, and that God is keeping their inheritance for them, and he's guarding them by his power. And so fear cannot negate these things. Whatever he means by fear doesn't take away all that, the, the forgiveness, the joy, the hope, the promises of God. And so what's clear is that God has brought them into relationship with himself. And so this fear that Peter calls them to is a fear which is based on relationship. If you call on him as Father who judges impartially, According to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear. And so they're con- to conduct themselves with fear because of their relationship and their status before God. Not because they're afraid of their relationship and status with God. Uh, they're to conduct themselves with fear because of how God has already acted in their life. And so our obedience doesn't earn us a relationship with God, but it's evidence of our relationship with God. Relationship, then responsibility. Grace always precedes command. And even... On the opposite side, if obedience is evidence of our relationship with God, a lack of obedience to God's commands 
can be evidence of a lack of a relationship with God. If we're calling on him as our father, we ought to be doing what he says. You're calling him father, so listen to him. Jesus would say the same thing. I don't know why you're you know, calling me Lord when you don't do what I say. If we're calling on him for forgiveness, for help, for mercy, for grace, and a glorious future, then we ought to want to please him, to fear him. And if think about this just in terms for parents today. Hudson already has my love no matter what. I would use as love Ezra does too, but you know, he's not really disobeying yet. So uh, so and it spits up on me a lot though, so um, Hudson already has my love no matter what. And I already take pleasure in him as my son, no matter what. But I also want him to obey, and in doing that I will take pleasure in what he does. I already love and take pleasure in who he is. He is my son. That's who he is in relation to me. But I can also take pleasure in what he does. And if we have a healthy relationship, um, it's not saying, do this or else I won't love you. Uh, The healthy response of a beloved son to his father is to want to please him. And it's not out of, I need to do this or else God's going to, or dad's going to kick me out. He's not going to love me anymore. We're not going to be in a relationship anymore. No, the relationship is already there. It's not do this or else. It's do this to please me. I'm already always going to be pleased with you as my son, but what you do can please me as well. And so it isn't a healthy relationship if we just want God to give us stuff, uh, and, but we don't want him to have any say over our lives, because um, God wants, it's not that God wants more from us, he wants more for us than that. It's not, I need you to obey me to make me feel good and in control and powerful, but God wants more for us. He, what does Peter call it? He says, you've been uh, redeemed from the, uh, he calls it, the futile ways that you inherited from your forefathers. You were on this empty, futile path, useless, not going anywhere. And God wants more for you than that. Obey Him. That's a road that leads to life. So who we fear is about who we're trying to please. So you can ask yourself, whose approval matters most to you? Whose well done do you most want? Whose stamp of approval do you want on your life? And what Peter's really telling us is this relationship with God changes our life orientation. He says, conduct yourself with fear throughout the time of your exile. And the fear of God keeps them from giving in to the pressure of being different, of being sojourners and strangers and foreigners in this world. Fear of God helps us to continue to be different from the world among us, despite whatever hostility and harassment may come our way. And so... Christianity is not good advice about what to do. It's good news about who God is and what God has done in Christ. It's not good advice about how we get saved, but it's good news about what God has done uh, in order to provide salvation to us. And that good news changes us because uh, when we believe that, when we say, yes, I want that relationship, God, then that changes our life orientation. And really what I was coming out of this section was um, it's about having a God-centered life. And I call this one, this message, your God-centered life, because it's kind of more directed to the individuals. Next week, it's our God-centered life. And so he has this individual commands, and then he's going to have some commands for the community. And so it's really about a God-centered life. And we have a God-centered life because who he is and what he's done in our lives. He says, you know, there's going to be this grace given to you. You're going to have this future, and that, let that be your greatest hope. The, whole, you're, the God you call on his Father, who's called you out of darkness, he has a holy character. So let that be your greatest model for how you live. And this God 
you call him his father, and so let his be the approval, be your greatest motivation, rather than things you might look to in the world. And so we might ask ourselves, who or what is the greatest influence in our lives? And we can look at what your hope is in, look at your conduct, look at whose approval you want. And so as I was reflecting on this passage for myself, it was convicting because it's like, okay, where is my hope? Who do I want to be like? And whose approval do I want the most? And I can tend to put my hope, as I mentioned last time in First Peter, that we're very nearsighted with our hope, is that, you know, I want this weekend to go well, or I want my kid to listen to me, or I want this money, or I can't wait till re- even retirement, even if you're 30 years old now, and you're like, my hope is in retirement, that's still very nearsighted because uh, Peter's saying, look, put your hope fully on what Jesus is going to be brought to you. And what I've noticed is that um, the more I put my hope in what's in front of me or in the near future, the more anxious I become, and that anxiousness leads to anxiety, or sorry, to anger, is that I'm feeling anxious, and so now I'm mad at the people or the things of this world that aren't meeting my expectations. I'm disappointed. So where's my hope? And who do I want to be like? I tend to want to be like other people so that I will fit in. Um, As I think about people I know at Starbucks or in our neighborhood, it's like, am I willing to just be myself? Really, this is... (laughs) We talked about the beginning of the year, a vision for the years. Uh, be, uh, be the real you in real relationships with people who really need Jesus. And I have, it's hard for me sometimes to be the real me, because the real me is going to talk about God, it's going to talk about prayer, and talk about Jesus. And so it's like in the people that I interact with on a weekly basis, am I being the real me, or am I wanting to be like them? Instead of being holy, being different as my God is holy, Am I just being like them, talking about the things that they want to talk about, the topics that they feel comfortable with, the things that they're interested in? Am I ever just being myself and putting and showing them that I'm different instead of, I'm just like you, we can talk, this is fine, and not bring up Jesus? And lastly, whose approval do I want? And I want people to like me. I think we all want people to like us. I don't know of anyone who wouldn't. I want people's approval. I don't want to bring up... Um, you know, beliefs that I think people won't like. I don't want to bring up uh, behaviors that I think people won't like or that they'll think is weird. I just want people to like me. And in the last passage, I use this as an application point. And I'll use it again because it's so powerful. Is You can figure out where your hope is, who you want to be like, and whose approval you want by just going through your if-onlys, you know, uh, if only, if only I could get this, then my hope would be fulfilled. If only um, I could do this, then I will fit in. I'll look cool, or you know, whatever it is. Or if only this person would see this in me, they would approve of me, they would like me. And you can go through this if only. I mean, anytime I'm like feeling uh, anxious or angry or frustrated about a situation, it helps me to sit down and I start writing about all my if onlys, and I'll quickly find where my hope is. I'll quickly find who I'm trying to be. I'll quickly find who I'm wanting to approve of me. And it's just like, if only, if only, if only, if only. And then we can turn that into, if only you know this would happen, then I would have blank. And then you can say, well, wait a second. Only if I trust in God will I have blank. So change your if only to an only if. If only I had this, then I would have to be peaceful. I'd be joyful. We say, only if I turn to God will I have that. And then you can even change it to, when we read in the Sermon on the Mount, um, how there's all these things that might be happening to us uh, that we don't like or we're afraid. Well, if I'm the real me, if I talk about Jesus, 
you know, what could happen? What might they say? And we feel like a lot is at stake. We're scared of all these what-ifs. And you can just say, even if they don't like me, my hope is in Jesus. Still, I'm approved of by God. God loves me. I've done what God wanted me to do. And so even if they don't like what I did, God approves of me. God's pleased with me. Or, you know, you just go through those even ifs, um, telling us, like, even if that bad thing that we're scared of happening, for me being different around the people you know, in my life, if I'm different, this might happen, this might happen, this might happen. I might lose respect. They might talk about each other too. They might think I'm a weirdo. They might be like, well, you know, there's that Jesus free Bible thumper person. You know, they're just, you know, whatever it is. Even if they thought all that, even if they did any of that, still. I've got God's approval. My hope is in Him. Uh, I'm living for Him. I've been like Him in this. And he just ends this passage in verse 21, or verse 20 and 21. He just talks about, let me just say a little bit that's true about Jesus Christ. Verse 20, he says, He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through Him are believers in God, who raised Him from the dead and gave Him glory, such your faith and hope are in God. So just in these last verses, starting 19 to 21, the things he lists that are true of Jesus, he says, his death is the ransom paid to redeem us. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world. Redemption by Jesus' death was part of God's plan before creation existed. It wasn't like, whoa, that went off the rails. I guess we'll have to send my son to go. No, this was planned. This God knew was going to happen. He's been manifested or revealed in the last times for the sake of you. Of all of God's people across times, uh, Peter earlier said, we have the greatest motivation for obedience because we know that our salvation is through the death of God's very own Son. Whereas in the Old Testament, they did not know that. So of all people, we should be most motivated to not go back to those old ways because God paid His very own Son to bring us into this relationship. He says that He was raised from the dead and given glory. And then he said, it's Christ's work leads us to faith and hope in God. And so what we see in Jesus' life, he put his faith and hope in God. Suffering, then glory. Death, then resurrection. He put his faith and hope in God. He suffered and died, but was vindicated through his resurrection. Wow, all the things he said, he wasn't crazy. It was all true. And if he hadn't been resurrected, he'd be like, well, that guy, you know, he had some good stuff to say, but he got a little weird sometimes. Uh, and But then he's resurrected, and it's like, Wow, who he said he was and what he said he would do is all true. He was vindicated. And so we follow the same pattern. What God has done in and through Jesus Christ is what he will do for us. Suffering, then glory. Death, then resurrection. And a lot of our being different in, you know, in our world is perhaps going to get us suffering. People not liking us. People saying, don't talk about that. Or, you know, leave the Jesus stuff out of our conversations. Or people talking about you to coworkers or friends or neighbors. You know, don't go to that house. You know, they might talk about God with you. And so are we willing to take that upon ourselves and trust God? What you've told us is that Jesus' path is our path. The pattern for his life would be the pattern for our life. Let's pray that that would be, you would live that way. Father, we hear in these verses that you have called us you called us out of darkness into your marvelous light. Once we were not a people, but now we are your people. Once we had not received mercy, but now we have received mercy. And so we are the sheep of your flock. We are citizens of your kingdom. 
We are people of your covenant that you've made with us. Oh Lord, would you, all this makes us different. And it's a good thing that we're different because of these things. Lord, would you give us, uh, just anchor us in what is true of you and what is true of us because of what you've done, that we would be different in this world and we wouldn't be afraid uh, to show who we really are. So in his name we pray. Amen.